speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week. And as always, we are going to discuss coercive control, cults, uh, nonsense, and things like that, extremist beliefs, and where those beliefs take people. And this week, I have invited back to the show Christian Zirko. And Christian is someone who I met years ago at the Going Clear conference uh, in Canada. And we um, and and there was talk and presentations and things about Scientology mostly. It was going clear. It was all about Scientology stuff. But Christian is someone who who works far more broadly than just in the cult world or in in you know with Scientology. He's somebody who um, is a recovery counselor. He doesn't he doesn't approach this from you know cults bad me good. It's, and Christian, if you want to explain for the audience just to give a refresher for everybody. Who are you and what do you do? Right. Well, um, I'm coordinator of something called the Dialogue Center in the United Kingdom. And yes, I am from across the pond. And uh, my focus, my emphasis is on where abuse has taken place and where people are still suffering the after effects of that abuse. I also occasionally get calls from people who are in some group or some situation and want to know how to get out or just want to talk about it maybe check to see if certain concerns or fears or anxieties they have uh, are worth entertaining and following up. So sometimes I'll get a current member who will come to me and say, um, well, usually what they start out by saying is a friend of mine. And then eventually they'll say, well, it's actually, I'm the one that's got the problem. I'm in this group and I'm starting to wonder if maybe something's wrong with it. And then we'll talk from there. as I say, I don't have an agenda. If a person comes to me and they just want to talk about something, we just talk. I listen, they talk. We talk around questions to do with that. And then it's up to them to decide whether they want to go further or whether they want to say, I'm ready to go back in the group with certain new questions and caveats and, and cautionary walls in place to protect myself. And sometimes they'll go back and maybe a year or two later, they'll come back and say, that didn't work and I need to get out. But the agenda comes from the person who comes to me, not from me. Um, Likewise, a family come to me about uh, a family member who's in something. Um, My first concern is for the person in the group. I obviously I take care of the family, but my first concern is the person in the group because they're the ones who are experiencing the potential for abuse, experiencing the potential for exploitation. And that's the thing that really concerns me the most. So that's what I do. Awesome. 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 And you've been doing this, uh, if I remember right, what, since the 1970s? Yeah, I'm coming up to 50 years. Damn. Next year is going to be 50 years. So, hey, and uh, I'm still here. Yeah, you are. And that's that's kind of its own level of credentials. You know, it's it's quite something to have been in this field for that long. I mean, you you uh yeah, you've seen all of it. <laughs> saw, I mean, cuz the I'll 70s the 70s is really when you know, the 60s maybe uh, to a degree, but I think the 70s is when the whole cult quote-unquote phenomenon and concern and anxiety sort of really started becoming a thing that was that was kind of openly discussed and talked about and 
that was the time period when, um, you know, academia kind of started bending over backwards to rationalize and justify the cultic behavior and, you know, and said the victims were, were, were going on too much and were, were being a bit extreme when actually it was the other way around. And we've, you know, since been doing an awful lot of work to correct that and sort that whole thing out and help people out. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're really just trying to help people. Unfortunately, that's not the only thing academia has done in the last 50 years. Exactly. We have excellent people who have come through and they are absolutely bona fide academics. They, you know, they are authorities, but they have taken the time to study not just what abusive groups and individuals want us to know about them, but also what they're doing that they're trying to hide. So some academics will say, well, I'm not going to read uh, Scientology policy letters because they didn't give them to me and say, here, analyze these. And there are others who have said, I want to see the policy letters too, because if that's what you're doing day to day, that's how you're making your rules, and that's what's affecting people. So I want the whole picture. Well, you know, that's a good point. That you're, that's that's a that's a legit point and and an important one because that's that that curiosity factor, that willingness to look further or go deeper, is exactly the point of why I am critical of you know mostly in the religious studies field and in the sociology field, whereas psychologists and and. Um, and people in my kind of end of academia get a bit more into the individual problems and issues and and trauma and how to deal with that. Whereas, you know, the, the group-oriented folks tend to, and I'm talking saying Ted, there's always exceptions to this, but tend to take the, vo- the point of view of or justify the actions of the group. And if they would dig deeper, they would see, no, there's actually at what I call frameworks of control built into these groups that are that are that go beyond the group's dogma or mission statement or purpose because it doesn't matter what their stated purpose or agenda is that framework of control like Scientology for example if we want to go you know to an specific is going to chew you up no matter how it's applied to you yeah. You know, yeah. and, and there is a difference between groups that are doing that to people that are we call destructive cults versus a more benign group that's really just trying to make its way in the world and get along and struggling and making mistakes. And maybe there are issues, but not quite the same level and not quite the purposeful intent that you see in groups like Scientology. So I think we can pretty easily draw some lines there as to what we're what's the good and the bad here, you know. Yeah. And of course, even in sociology, we have people, excellent people like Stephen Kent. And, you know, yeah. if we start naming those people yeah. and Stephen in his turn is turning out students that he's challenging to look broader and to to to, to look at the, the whole subject, whatever they're studying. And so things have changed a lot since the early days when you had certain people like Brian Wilson. Not the, not the Beach Boy, I hasten to add. No, uh, definitely like not. <laughs> <laughs> who simply, you know, throw a cover over it all and say, well, um, this is the way social groups develop over time and it's it'll come out right in the end. That's right. And then you have Stephen Kent and, and people like him saying, well, actually, they have built in certain mechanisms which will preserve them in an abusive relationship with their members. That's right. And 
and and that has to be said and you know people like Stephen have been saying it so exactly Exactly. So have you, um, as we're recording this today, and I'm pretty sure this is probably going to post in a few weeks, so I believe by the time we post this, the case will actually already be over, so we're not going to necessarily go into conclusions, but I'm just wondering, have you been following the Danny Masterson case? Somewhat, yes, I've been following it. Um, I have to admit, I, I look at legal cases, especially when it involves Scientology, and I think to myself, until we are absolutely sure they have exhausted all the barely legal shenanigans they can manage, we can't really feel confident or comfortable with what's going on because at any moment, something can go wrong. We've seen that before in other legal cases. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very much so. And and I can remember, and you probably can too, uh, previous cases against Scientology over this and that thing where people are saying, this is it. This is the big case that's going to break Scientology open and make people see what's really going on. Well, number one, they spoke too soon, and Scientology somehow pulled a rabbit out of the hat and did something to damage the case or to damage a a witness or something or did a private deal, you know, some kind of off-the-books deal, out-of-court settlement, uh, complete with a non-disclosure agreement. And number two... um, the people who looked at that, who were Scientologists, looked at it and said, yeah, that's just in theta. I'm not, ha- right. I'm not having anything to do with that. La, 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 la. And it didn't break anything wide open at all. Exactly. Yeah. It and was in this exactly. Country, we had Bonnie and Richard Woods here. And Bonnie beat the daylights out of Scientology in her case. And it never gets talked about, sadly, because she and her husband... They fought a war. Scientology came at them with everything and really tried to break them. And they won. They, 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 they comprehensively beat Scientology. And yet I was outside the court when Scientology made it sound like they had decided to concede the case for the sake of Bonnie's mental health. Wow. And then the case just got buried. That was it. Right. You know, nobody talks about it anymore. So I'm I'm hopeful, but I'm not counting any chickens because I'm not even sure there are eggs underneath that end. Absolutely. No, you're you're absolutely right. And I feel similarly as I sit here right now with, uh, you know, today the second victim, uh, you know, testifying. And the case is rolling forward. What I, what I, the reason I brought this up is because as with academia, we also have a problem in the legal arena, uh, even talking about the more problematic elements of Scientology and this in a courtroom. And this has been a real revelation watching uh, Tony Ortega's reporting of the testimony that's been given and how the lawyers talk, the questions that are asked, and what the witnesses are allowed to say. And this was really surprising, even to me at this late date, to watch how controlled that testimony has to be. It is not at all like what you see on TV where they go into these long monologues about what happened to them. And the, you know, this, these are for the actors. And in real life, it's short, it's clipped, it's to the point, it's answer only what you were asked about and nothing more. We don't want any other details. And it's all, it's striking how controlled that is in an effort, and I believe incredibly misguided, but this is what we're dealing with in the world, this misguided effort 
to protect the religion and the religiosity of Scientology by not bringing its practices and beliefs into the courtroom. So you can't even talk about it. You can't mention it. You can't bring it up. Every single time it comes up, the judge has to, you know, practically read this little paragraph to tell the jury, you know, this is just to establish their state of mind. This is no statement on Scientology or its value or beliefs. And you're like, my God, the amount of, of bending over backwards to protect a destructive group that, that covered up rape. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really been quite an education for me. And, and that's actually why I asked you, are you following this? What is your take on that? Have you been watching well, any of that? Yes, I have been watching it. And I've been following Tony's reports quite carefully. Mm. And the thing is, yes, it is, it is protecting Scientology's claim to be a religion, which it's not, but that's, you know, objectively speaking, it's not a religion. Subjectively, I could stick this in my pocket and say it's my idol, and therefore this is my religion. That's right. And subjectively, you can't argue. That's but right. Scientology, objectively speaking, I don't see a religion there, but that's me. So, yes, I think there is that element of protecting the claim to be a religion, but I think there's also... Want a, a kind of a wisdom on the part of the judge to say, I do not want to hand them an easy appeal. Oh, for sure. I, oh, for I sure. I do not want to yes. give the case away. If we get Danny Masterson on crime, I do not want him being able to have it thrown out just because we allowed Scientology to be dragged in in an unseemly way. So yeah. I think there's a balance there. And we can argue the toss as to whether that balance is in the right place or not. But I think that's important because um, and I think enough is going to come out anyway, Chris. I think significant well, so, things will come out. Yeah, no, for sure. Certainly things are coming out, even up to today. Um, yeah. You know, very much so. I, I, I want to be clear that I was speaking to the larger problem of talking about religion and religious practice in a court of law, not just this one case. I agree with you that the judge on this case, I believe it's Judge Almeida, Almeida I think that's how you say her name. She, um, she is doing a championship job of navigating very difficult waters because she is not the one who makes the procedures or laws She's the judge. She has to enforce the rules. And so I feel for her and the lawyers in this process, but mostly I feel for the victims who are not allowed to tell the whole story. And this is where I find it frustrating. As you know, that's all this backstory. You know, I know there is a framework, as I call it, this framework of coercive control built into Scientology yeah. As it is built into all destructive cults, that's the whole point of why we call them that. You have that built in, it's baked into the system, and yet it can't really fully be described or talked about because we can't attack a religion or we can't attack a belief. And and it's that concept that I find objectionable in the first place. And I'm and I'm not in any way critiquing the actions of the lawyers or the judge on either side on this. It's just been educational to watch how yeah. hamstrung they are when everybody thinks watching TV and watching law as conducted on TV and in movies that you've got so much more latitude than you really do in real life. And this, I believe, feeds an awful lot of frustration on the part of an awful lot of people out there 
who hear about Scientology and other cults, hear how awful they are and think, why can't this something be done about this in the courtroom? Well, here's your answer. Because <laughs> you, know, you can't even talk about well, it. You know, you know, I can remember seeing this going on in Perry Mason on the television right? back in the 1950s. You know, and, and before <laughs> that, there were films and they show this this ideal courtroom drama where truth is vindicated yes. and crime and, and evil are punished. And and it's so dramatic and it's yes. so moving. It's so, you know, it, it's it's like it's like knights jousting except without swords. Yes. Uh, and it's not real. Exactly. <laughs> not None real. of it's real. That's right. None of it's real. It's as real as a, as a worldwide, what is that? A world Wrestling Federation. <laughs> now it's as real. <laughs> It's as real as a wrestling match, you know. I mean, it's it's happening, it's there, but you know, yeah. hey, what are we really looking at, right? Um, all right. Well, anyway, I just wanted to gab with you about that a little bit and getting started here. But the real the real subject of our talk today is, you know, what we specialize in or what we know most about, which is how do you help people out of these out of these situations, right? And You've been doing it for decades. You know, you've been you, literally almost as long as I've been around. You've been working on this stuff. So, so I, I hear really, that more and more nowadays, you know. know? Yes. Yeah, so I, people say, gosh, my father was 17 when you started. You know, right, right. <laughs> so I guess what I, so I want to really give you the floor here for this, but I want to, I want to ask, right? Like, okay, so we, we talked a little bit before the show. You know, we see society a little ramped up, a little more anxious, a lot of more anxiety out there, I think, than, than a lot of people are really, you know, deserve or should should be ramped up to. And, and we can look at so many different factors from life to the economy to ideology to social media to cults and cultic influence. And it's all over the place. There's propaganda all over the place. And because we all are glued to and tied to these devices all day, we're constantly being fed a stream of, of maybe not so good news and certainly not all true news. But it's very hard to differentiate. It's hard to understand the world as a result of that. And so, you know, anxiety levels go up. And so I guess what I'm saying is that we're seeing more cultic behavior, cult-like behavior out of perfectly regular people under perfectly normal circumstances because of their ideology, let's say, or because of their, you know, religious beliefs that have been amped up or something. So how do you see this in your dealings with people and, and how do you approach dealing with it? I try to keep it as simple as possible, first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking of it just as as humanly as possible i start with the things that are to me truisms like that we all act according to what we think is true you know that's just to me that's a given the thing the thing i think is most true is the thing that's going to drive my behavior and that actually plays back into what we've just been talking about we do need to look at the the structure of beliefs that says this is always wrong and that's the way you have to behave and you're not allowed to say this and you're not allowed to go to that. Um, but we always behave according to what we believe is absolutely true. I mean, and I always say the same thing, so you've probably heard it before. Uh, if I really believed I could fly, I'd never walk again. Because, I mean, the idea of flying, the idea of just kind of doing a Superman or, or whatever, you know, some superhero thing, just going whoop, whoop, out the window, yeah, I'd do that all the, all day long and all night too. 
Um, but I don't believe it. I believe that if I step out that window, I've got a nasty fall ahead of me. And so I don't do it. I've never, never even thought of trying it. Sure. Um, and I start from there because we try to, because we try to live congruently with reality. It means that if somebody can get into our head and change our view of reality, they can change our behavior. They can change our commitment. They can change everything about us. And we'll do it willingly. We won't, they, they won't have to fight with us. They won't have to hold a gun to our head. This business of, um, you know, and I say this, it's true. There is a lot of coercion and a lot of manipulation, destructive manipulation that goes on in any kind of abusive relationship, any kind of abusive group. But that's, to me, not the worst of it. To me, the worst of it is when they turn us against ourselves by making us believe something that means that the only obviously logical thing to do is this other thing that they want us to do. And so if I came to your house, gosh, that would be something to fly across the ocean. Come to Colorado. I haven't been in Colorado in years. Um, yeah, please come. come. To Colorado, <laughs> walk into your door and hold a gun to your head and I tell you to do something. Well, you might decide a bullet in the head's a bad idea, and you might decide that while the gun's there, you're going to do what you're told. That's a sensible, logical thing. I believe there's a gun pointing at my head. I believe that if he fires that bullet, I'm dead. I don't like that idea. Yeah, I can do. That. I can stand on a chair and scream. I can do that. If that's all it takes, uh, you can take my money too. Yeah, that's fine. Take my money. And then I leave. And what do you do next? You act normally again because the gun is not there. There's no more coercion. There's no more force. But if I persuaded you that sitting here, not even coming to your house, sitting here, if I persuaded you that I am so wise in certain ways that I know that the thing you need to do to save your life and the life of your loved ones is in five minutes time to stand on your chair and scream as loud as you can for five minutes. If I could persuade you that that's true, what would you do? Well, obviously, if I thought that was true, I'd stand on the chair and scream at the top of my lungs for five minutes. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I would have exerted no force. I wouldn't have threatened you directly. Mm -hmm. I simply would have warned you of a reality that you didn't know about. And I do because I'm the great guru. Uh, I'm the great scientific leader. Whatever it is I claim for myself. I am channeling supernatural creatures from venus or whatever it is yeah and as soon as i convince you of that i have changed your map of reality to say reality isn't just what i think it is it's also this thing that christian has told me about which is dangerous and that there's only one way to protect myself from it so now i've changed your map of reality you behave congruently with what you think is true you stand on the chair and scream That's and right. if i tell you that the only way to save your life is to do that every day at the same time as long as you believe it, you're going to do it. That's right. And you've had this experience yourself, doing knowledge reports and doing doing auditing and getting people's ethics in when they're not doing what they're supposed to. You know, the whole thing, everything that happened there was because you believed there was an underlying truth. You believed that reality was such that those were the right things to do. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's that's where I work from. Are there also coercion? 
oh yeah, I mean, you know, you Scientology had the whole for a while. Uh, so many groups have some form of disconnection uh, or some kind of excommunication or disfellowshipping or whatever. You'll never speak to your family again unless you do what we tell, tell you. I classify that as coercive. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It Whereas is. what I'm talking about, what I've just been talking about is non-coercive in my opinion, because all I've done is said, here's a belief system you can buy into. If you believe it, there are certain behaviors that are the consequence of it. Yes, for Keep sure. For sure. Yeah. I think I think in um I think a situation I think what we see in these groups is that you have two points where the coercive elements start coming into play. Because mm -hmm. what you just described there is an awful lot like a religious conversion or somebody coming in and being, you know, in, in, recruited into a group, let's say, and everything's mm -hmm. fine. Everything's above the boards. You all got power, choice. It's all free will. Mm -hmm. Walk in, walk out, whatever. But there is a point, sometimes sooner, sometimes later, but there comes a point in, in these groups where these problematic groups we're talking about, at least, or situations Maybe I'll say extremist situations, since it applies mm -hmm. to more broadly than just cults. Yeah. Um, hell, let's talk about gangs. Let's talk about domestic partnerships where things get a little not so great, right? Yep. There's a point where the coercion starts entering in when resistance is presented. Yes. Yes. And this is why I say there has to be both of these side by side. Yes. Because, that's for right. example, you can join some kind of some kind of not even a group as such, a, a kind of a movement or an understanding where you go to a seminar and you learn to you learn to to think positively. You learn how to get the universe on your side by doing certain things, by performing certain rituals or certain habitual behaviors, and by not doing certain other things. So now the universe is on your side, and everything's going to work out. And you're never going to get sick anymore. And you're going to be rich instead of poor. And you're going to have the dream home and the dream wife or husband or, or the dream car or whatever it is. And everything's going your way because the universe is your friend now. Yeah. Strictly speaking, that's not a religion. That's just, I mean, some people call it new age woo, but that's another story. But it's, it's well, an it idea. It comes in lots of guises. Yes, it does. Right. Yes, it does. Nexium was not a religion. Right. It was business consultation. It was personal empowerment. Right. right. And there have been, there have been uh, management training programs going back. And I first encountered it back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Management training programs where if you wanted to keep your job, here's the coercion part. You want to keep your job, you go on this seminar. Yep. Or, for, or go away for this weekend is, or this weekend retreat. Yes. Yes. Right. But the non-coercion part is the day-by-day -day stuff. Well, we're all in agreement here. We can't possibly make this company fly until we're all in agreement. You don't see anything wrong with this, do you? You, you think this idea is going to work, don't you? And it's like, well, gosh, everybody else here sees it. And of course, we have the um, uh, the experiments with with agreement because Compliance, everybody yeah. else is doing it. Was Ash, Ash the Ash conformity experiments? Yes. Yes, Con um, conforming with the group. Exactly. Is, so, and, then, and those, so there you are. Yeah. You know, it's it's obvious. Everybody else can see the point. Maybe the problem is that I'm not thinking it through carefully enough. Mm -hmm. So that's why I don't see it. So I'm going to go along with their judgment, and we'll we'll make it work. We'll make it go right. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> and so you have this again. <laughs> I know you again. You have this combination of of coercive and non-coercive pressure to fit in with this way of belief that 
at some point is going to let you down. The company, you know, 2008 comes along and the company hits the wall and you did all the right things and you, you dreamed all the dreams together and you did the idea boards and the, the whole thing. And yet there you are, the company's down the toilet. But, you know, what are you supposed to do about that? Mm. But it's not a religion. It's not a belief system in the, in the sense that people talk about when they think of cults, not realizing that the word cults has to be bigger than that. And it's another reason why I don't use the word, as you know, um, because we have to think bigger. That's right. Religion got left behind ages ago in this conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because this applies to multi-level marketing companies just as much as it applies to Scientology. Yeah. Uh, the same, it's the same style and brand of stuff. And in fact, let's, let's, let's break that down a little bit because I think we've just talked about something and I want to kind of um, highlight something we just, we just mentioned here, which is that the coercion enters in and acts effectively. It acts, the, you know, it acts as coercion and you, and you go along with it and, and buckle under it only because the earlier step succeeded of yeah. convincing you that yeah. this group, idea, belief set, relationship, situation is valuable and important to you and something you need in your life. Exactly. Right? And if that didn't happen, the coercion isn't going to keep it there. You're going to, unless, unless, of course, you're a kid in a family being raised like this, and that's the problem. One of the key problems with second-generation members is their willingness and and agreement with the process is never consulted in the first place. It's simply yeah. assumed they're going along for the ride and they are punished until they do. And that's actually not a way I've ever framed it before, but I think that's a really, really good way of describing the difference between first-gen and second-gen membership. Yes, because in the first-gen people, they're having an experience which is persuading them this must be right yep this must be right um that's why i i mean in in the model i use here the idea that if you can alter a person's psychological state and give them an experience yes you will change them emotionally and it's the emotional attachment then that makes certain arguments look true and certain arguments look not valid um Yes. This is, you know, this is this this is this other thing that I I keep going back to that we like to think that we are rational beings who have emotions and we're not. We are emotional beings who are logical sometimes and Correct. are not logical sometimes. Yes. And and you know, I I keep wanting to say this and I know if I say it there will be some people who will get upset. Uh, not upset exactly, but they'll think to themselves, you know, well, you know, you're just you're just confusing the issue here. But for all the talk we've had about critical thinking, mm -hmm. my experience with my clients is that they need critical feeling. Well, let me please take this opportunity to because I love doing this, and I've done this with John Atack as well. Let me please add on my take on exactly mm -hmm. what you just said, which is that I could not agree with you more, but to my way of thinking, I include education and understanding of emotional intelligence 
mm-hmm. as part of the critical thinking package. In an ideal world, I would absolutely agree with you. I, that's how in I approach we, it. That, yeah, you know. in the world we live in, too many people are coming along ready to argue. You know, they've memorized yeah. all the fallacies of logic. Yeah. They have memorized a, a, a year one philosophy book yeah. or whatever. And they're all ready to go great guns at that, but they're doing it with so much uncritical feeling. Correct. They're Correct. emotionally all over the place. And sometimes, quite often, people will say to me, well, I understand that the group is wrong up here, but I still have these feelings here about yes. what the group taught me. And I'm, I'm struggling to throw that off. And I don't know how to do that. And so much of the work I do with people in recovery is about getting the ideas from here to here, which is not really getting the ideas down, but understanding the emotional significance of certain ideas. Yes. And, and dealing with that feeling that really hurts when you find out, you know, when you find out Owen Hubbard was a pathological liar, for example, when you find out that Sun Myung Moon um, wasn't, you know, he, he didn't marry his ideal uh, wife the first time around. He had, he had a lot of trial runs with a lot of other women. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, he did. Um, whatever revelation he had, it didn't include finding the right woman the first time round. No. And it didn't even include being 100% faithful to her after he found her necessarily. There was, there, there are questions about the man. And, you know, and Maharishi, and you, you just go through all of these people and you find out that there is something that hurts emotionally when you discover it about them. And however much intellectually you embrace that, here you you want them to you still want them to be okay, and this is why people go through a transition. They leave the group, and they're not a hundred percent free of it necessarily. Some people, yeah, they just they just flip over, but an awful lot of people I see, even after years, are still struggling with the fact that they've internalized the leader to the degree where. There's an attachment, a deep attachment of emotion. And so this is why I do separate them. You know, as I say, in an ideal world, I'd be right there with you. Yeah, the two belong together. But in in my experience, there's this idea that I need to be able to say to somebody, separate those two things out. And let's just look at where these emotions have come from. And the chances are the emotions have come from an experience somewhere early on, which they believed proved to them beyond reasonable doubt that this leader was the bee's knees of leaders and the guy they should be, or the woman, they should be following. And it's undoing that emotional attachment. And then all the things that grab onto that, well, you see, you had this experience, the, the leader said to you, you'd feel a cool breeze up the back of your neck when, when, when the power came upon you. Um, and so the guru says this, and you feel a cool breeze. You don't happen to notice you're in a very breezy Victorian building where the windows don't fit well. And so, you yeah, you feel a cool breeze, but now you're paying attention, so you have this experience. That's right. And so then when the leader later says, you do this breathing activity, you do this yoga exercises, you do this, you do that, you have my picture on, on an altar in your home, and you'll get more power. And it makes sense because it attaches to that original cool breeze up the back of the neck. Yeah, exactly. And it's got nothing to do with logic or reasoning. 
Well, so that's why I separate them. If, I don't know if that makes sense, but no, 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 it totally makes sense. And I can see from a from a treatment or a or counseling or you know consultation point of view. Why, well, of course you would. You know, you definitely need to. And and I believe. I mean, would it, would I be wrong in assuming that education on these matters is part of the process, so people kind of can can yeah. do that separation? And I again, I you know, I'm going to say, well, it's it's all part and parcel of the critical thinking, but I. But I get it. That's my brand of thing, and it they, and it needs to be differentiated because most people don't think that way. And so, you know, there's this emotional intelligence, and then there's like this rational intelligence, and these are two different things. But they are so. But the funny thing, the crazy thing, and the crazy making thing about it is that both processes are happening in the same place. Yeah. Right. And so they are combined by necessity of the fact of, of our existence. And so people will take their emotional commitment and they will mistake certainty and factual objective reality for yeah. that emotional commitment. Yeah. And they combine oh, yeah. these things, right? And that's what we're trying to pull apart. And unfortunately, once you're committed, and you've made that emotional investment and that decision, this is true because I feel good or I feel good, therefore XYZ must be true, that those XYZs are not necessarily true at all. It's just a, a viewpoint you've adopted or taken on. You know, oh, L. Ron Hubbard, he's the man, right? Well, he's not the man, but, you know, but, but, but I had this euphoric experience and they told me L. Ron Hubbard was the source of that, so therefore it must be and... You know, and 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 on the shenanigans ensue. I believe that questioning is the key to separating and dividing and deconstructing this in a person's mind, rather than telling. Absolutely. You, yeah. You can't tell a person. You cannot. Well, you can, but you're wasting your time and theirs. Yep. Um, but what you can do, and what I do with people, is I like to explore with them where their certainty comes from. And that you have to do that with open questioning. You have to do that by getting a person comfortable talking about it, thinking it through, and taking it like an object that you want to study and just turning it around and looking at it from different angles and seeing what else was going on and what else was happening. And you know, what the first time the first time you bowed down and kissed the guru's feet, what led up to that? What else did you see? Well, what you saw were the ideal people who had been held up as perfect disciples doing that. And at some point, you understood that that's the proper way to behave. So, for example, back going way back now, when somebody asked the question of Guru Maharaji, as he was called then, uh, they, they, asked, they wrote in and asked the question, and it's published in one of their divine papers, um, and I think it's published in there, and this is divine somewhere around 1972. Um, and they ask, you know, what do I have to do to prepare for, for, for initiation? And his answer was satsang, listen to a lot of satsang, which means listen to a lot of other people talk about how they got bliss from being initiated. Mm. See, so in what you're doing is you're preparing to be initiated to have an experience by hearing a lot of other people talk about having the experience right and you know and the, the cliche is um expectation conditions experience i was just gonna say it's priming it is it's priming and yeah 
And they so, do the same you know, thing and, in and he Scientology. Was quite open about it. He, he was very open about it. This is what yep. you do. This is how you get ready. Yep. You get ready by being primed. Yep. Sit and listen to people, and it'll happen. You'll you'll know that it's the time to go forward and ask for, and and that priming, in one way or another, can be found in most of these experiences, if not all of them. And the question is, did you realize you were primed? So what I do, I don't ask that ask it that way. I just ask people to recall it. What happened there? What brought you to that point? And as they talk about it, we begin to see if that's really what happened for them. When did that, that significant experience take place? Very often it's in the first 24 or 48 hours. It can be sometimes weeks or months later. Yep. But knowing what it was and when it was helps them to ask the right questions of themselves. That's right. As you say, you can't tell a person this. They have to come to it. Exactly. You don't. And it's funny because when we're doing this kind of work, you don't even want to necessarily. I, I, I am a firm and strong advocate for education as part of the recovery process. But this is one of those things where you don't want to, in your questioning, necessarily prime the person. <laughs> this is this is a right. really important point. Yes, yeah, talk what, about that. That's for what really you're looking important. for, right? Yeah. That's why the question has to be really wide open. Mm-hmm. It has to be very general. It takes time both to ask the, the question in a way that gets the person speaking, but it also takes time for them to come around to it. And you have to be, you cannot be watching your clock and do this, in my opinion. You just, you know, yes. forget about the clock because um, what they need is to have the time to reflect, maybe to go away. They hear the question this week and they go away. And three weeks later, they come to you and, you, and they say, you know, I was thinking about that question that you asked and I remembered something or something. I've actually had people say, I had a dream and it was a dream about when I first joined the group and such and such a thing happened. Yeah. And I've remembered that something happened and I've never told you about it. Well, yeah, it takes time. It really takes time. That's right. And if you don't give people that time, if you don't respect their need for that time, they're not going to be able to talk to you about what happened to them in a way that's fruitful. I mean, some people, yeah, they're right there. There's, there's, always, there's always that possibility. And there's a whole range, but there are people at the other end and they have to think about it and they have to gradually give themselves permission to remember. That's right. And that's okay. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there for the long haul. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's, and that's a point I make all, all the time. Exactly. Is this is never a one and done. This is yeah. never a one conversation and, oh, I'm over everything now. Trauma just doesn't work that way. You know, an emotional yeah. investment just doesn't work that way. It it's, it took a while, yeah. whether you see it or not, it, whether it's obvious or not, I should say. Yeah. It takes a while for a person to fall into a cultic or extremist mindset. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not a flash thing. It's going to take a while to bring them out of it, too. Yeah. You know, it just is. And there's no rushing and- it. There's no hurrying it. And sometimes... And you tell me, sometimes the, 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 the former member, the person themselves wants to rush it. 
You know? Oh yeah. It's yeah. Like, oh, I oh, gotta yeah. get, I gotta I get, get over this, this now. You know, that's right. I've got so much to do with my life. I want to get this done and dusted. Absolutely. Right. Or if I'm having to work with somebody through a family, the family's in a hurry because you know, well, we were supposed to go on a holiday next week and, and you're still traumatized, you know, come on, let's get this show on the road. Exactly. Um, this is one of the things that I work very hard on with people is that time is a major factor in recovery. And one of the reasons that we don't often talk about is because in addition to critical thinking, critical emotions or feelings, and, you know, these kinds of lower, what I consider lower level factors, which are important, but they're not key, is the effect on the individual, the effect on the person and their view of themselves. And one of the things that I see over and over is that the leader dominates people in a relationship, which means I'm the leader, I'm important. You're the peon, you're not important. The only time you're important is if I think I can get something out of you. And what that means is that the leader's time is more important than the follower. The leader's attitudes and opinions and priorities are all more important. That's the essence of being in a destructive group and being in an authoritarian group. So part of, for me, part of recovery is giving the person the experience of having that all turned on its head. And time is, how do I put this? Time is the currency of importance. For me. Oh my when God, I love people. that expression. Did you make that up? I'm not I'm not sure I've heard it anywhere else, but it's something that I started working on a very long time ago when I realized that a 50-minute session is a way of saying, Yeah, we need to take care of you, but I've got other things to do. Mm. And that goes back a long time. Um I started restructuring what I do with people so that it's open-ended. If you want to sit and stare at me for half an hour or an hour. That's okay. I can sit here and be stared at. If it takes you that long to decide you trust me enough to talk to me, that's okay. If you come to the end of that time and say, I don't trust you today, I'll maybe, I'll maybe come back next week or I maybe won't. That's okay too. The important thing is that they have had the experience in an abusive group. They've had the experience of being nobody, of being told you are virtually worthless unless you mean something to me, unless you do something for me, unless you prove yourself, unless you earn money, unless you make me important in the eyes of others, unless you recruit all those unlesses, all those conditions, those conditions are the only way you're important in the group. That means your time is nothing. That means you want to see the leader? Well, the leader hasn't got time for you. Go away. Or the leader will give you a couple of minutes so he can tell you what to do. Then go away. That's right. But when someone comes to me, it's absolutely vital. What, whatever else we do or don't do, it's absolutely vital that they know that their time is more important than mine in, as far as I'm concerned. Because time is the currency of worth. It's the currency of their value as people. And they've been deprived of value as people in their group. So true. That's so true. I mean, I can demonstrate that even from my Scientology experience. Nine months of waiting around, a lot, a lot of waiting around and busy work, just yeah. trying to leave Scientology. <laughs> that was once I made it known I wanted to go. Oh, well, we got some awful, uh, wonderful work for you in all these bathrooms and all these closets and all these hidden away places on the base. 
where we're going to stick you and you can go spin your wheels and contemplate your navel and existence. Uh, and we'll get around to, you know, giving you your security check and letting you go when we're good and ready to. Because you're on our exactly. time, buddy. You're not on. This is not our time. This isn't Fast Times at Richmond High. Right? This, is not, this isn't our time. This is my time. Yeah. And, you're, and, and I'll see you at my pleasure is how the cult or the group yeah. or the abuser, like, you know, again, broadening these out. This this is a brilliant point. This is a really good point you're bringing the, up. The rough starts at the head. So you have, you know, mm. you, using Scientology, you have Elron Hubbard, whose time is too valuable to waste on his underlings. So his underlings understand that's how to treat the people below, and th they learn that's how you treat the people below. There you go. This is an this is an assertion of authority. You see it in ordinary life where somebody will go for an appointment with a bank manager, and you have to wait because the bank manager is too busy. Bank manager is important person. You're just there asking for a loan or yeah. asking for some information or assistance. You're not that important. You go to your boss and you, you want to talk to him about something. He'll, he'll say, make an appointment and so on and so on. It's, it's all over. The important people make you wait. That means you, by definition, are less important. That's right. In an authoritarian group, it's, it's, it's a way of saying, I'm important. I'm, in the, I'm higher in the pecking order. So yes. you wait for me. And so part of, part of recovery is having the experience that the group was wrong, having the experience, I can be important too. I can, be, I can matter to somebody. I can have somebody say that they're there for me and not that I'm there for them. Right. And, that, and to me, that's kind of a meta level. All the other processes or techniques or whatever you want to call them go on in a setting where the client is the important person there. Great point. That's a very, very good point, and one that I've not addressed a lot on my channel, so I'm glad you brought that up. I have, of course, talked often and repeatedly about how difficult it was for me to not guilt myself all the time because I wasn't working all the time after I got out of the cult, right? And because this, we all. <laughs> yeah, because you have this, you know, this insane work ethic where you got to be working 18 hours a day or you're just not very... <laughs> useful as a human being and reclaiming that time for yourself and learning to literally sit and do nothing on your dime on your own will is yeah. tremendously important i think and as as part of the process of that and so that's a yeah. you know again a great point and again so, recreation you teach yeah. teaching people that it's okay to, to do recreation so you want to paint i i do try to explore with people what they would like to do. Now, some people are actually resistant to the idea because they think it's wasting the time when I'll say to them, well, why don't you go off and write, and just write something because you like writing or go, mm -hmm. go learn to play a musical instrument or take up painting or whatever. You know, I, when it's been appropriate, I've taken people for long walks or I've taken people to a park to play or I've taken people to do something recreational, take them to a museum or something because... There is that thing in your mind, whatever your group is, whatever they call God or whatever they call right, there is this thing that God or the right or whatever it is doesn't want you wasting time on yourself, doesn't want you wasting time caring for yourself or enjoying yourself or whatever it might be that they classify this as. And so saying to somebody, well, have you heard this song and playing, playing some music from, for them off my iPod? 
there's a word ipod uh, <laughs> you're, you're you're dating yourself uh, here yeah <laughs> i know i know all you young folks oh i can really date myself and talk about my walk uh, <laughs> but you know and even worse my my pocket-sized transistor radio oh my, oh my um, god oh my god but you know to, to say to somebody here let's do this thing We're, we we have to take a break anyway because you know time time is there for us but you need a break this has been intense let's take a break so i'll encourage people to take a break i'll sit there and say while we're just sitting here just have a listen to this song and just play some music just play something and let them react to it just to have the experience of saying i can be doing nothing i can be doing something that the leader would say is worthless and it's okay i can be guessing about what i want to do next i can be just sitting still and doing nothing or sitting still and daydreaming i can watch the clouds go by i can read a book that i like not because it's important just encouraging people to find something recreational to turn off for a while that's actually part of recovery too oh, and yeah. getting people getting people to realize that when they've had such a strong work ethic they feel like they're being lazy they're wasting time they're being evil they're being whatever it is that the group would say about that because it's not making money and so all that goes into it you could say it's another way of looking at time too the time that your time doesn't belong to the leader anymore it belongs to you exactly if you want to just sit there and sunbathe or ride a bike or write a poem or paint a picture or sit in a museum or sit in a cafe for half an hour why not and getting people to make that transition to relax for some people it's relatively easy for some people it's really hard i've seen people get physically ill because they did something that was playing and they'd never done that before hmm. Hmm. and then to, to help them to see that it's okay that's just that's just you coming to terms with the old rules from the, the master and the new reality and it's okay that your body reacts that way it won't go on forever we can talk through this let's talk about what you felt when you felt sick let's talk about how it affected you to realize you were breaking a rule and do you understand that that's not a real rule or do you think it really is and why and so on and so on. and so you, you follow that thread till you get to why it is that they left the group a year ago but even now if they do something recreational it makes them ill right and so you explore that with them and eventually they have their own realization rather than feeding it to them because if you try to feed it to them, it will not work. But you can bring them to the place where they say, hmm, I was worried about something happening that isn't going to happen. And then they begin to realize it's, it's possible to have a fear. Just like if you go on a roller coaster. Now, falling from 60 feet at, 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 at terminal velocity... Uh, in a roller coaster is just like falling out of a window, except that the roller coaster is going to do this at the end and you're not going to die. Mm. But the fear is the same. Some people, the fear is always a bad thing and they won't go on a roller coaster. Other people look at it and say, yeah, that's a safe way to feel that little buzz of excitement and get that adrenaline rush. And yeah, I can do that. And they become really keen on going on roller coasters. 
It's the same fear. When we think that we're breaking a rule that matters, we feel that fear. When we break a rule that we used to think matters, but it doesn't, that's an opportunity for a realization, for an insight into ourselves. That's an opportunity to say, ah, that's like thinking that the roller coaster is going to crash. I'm okay. I can do that again. I can go straight back out there and I can play again. You know, where's the Frisbee? Let's go and play Frisbee again. And suddenly something changes inside them. And playing Frisbee and having fun and laughing and being silly isn't scary anymore. Mm. So for a person who's in that state of mind, it can be a real discovery. Most people, it's not that extreme. Most people, they just slide gradually into it and realize, oh, yeah, this isn't so bad. There's, you see where, where that goes? Oh, totally. Completely. Yeah, yeah. I... um. And, and and where I wanted to go with that, or our next question I had for you on this is um, that deals with, or we're talking here about, you know, old habits, old ideas, old ingrained control mechanisms, you might say, or structures, right? Um, you know, sort of enforced habits people have after they leave these groups and they become so ingrained, they they take them on as part of their identity even. And those are the really deep ones that you got to really dig for. And I'll tell you one that, um, that as an example in my life that took a long time, years before I kind of twigged on this one being, being something so insidiously horrible, but sounding so altruistic and wonderful at the time mm -hmm. in Scientology. And these are the kind of things you really got to break apart is a being is only, this is a Hubbard quote, a, a, a mantra, if you will, a being is only as valuable as he can serve others. Even to stop clocks, right? Twice a day. Right? Well, here's the, it's not, it's not actually it's a, a true piece of information because right. you do have more value than what you assist others with. Helping right. other people is a valuable experience for you and for those you're helping. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not an evil datum, but it's right. the kind of insidious you know, altruistic statement that you can dedicate yourself to, go all in on, mm -hmm. and then deny that you're part of the picture. That's right. Because you're only as valuable as you can serve others. What a beautifully perfect slave mentality to instill in somebody else. And that is a, that is at the level of of a code of conduct for Sea mm -hmm. Org members in Scientology, the billion-year contract people, right? The guys who really go all in. This yeah. is one of the things that they chant and mantra and, and teach themselves is that a being is only as valuable as he can serve others. And yeah. that is a trap. It's mm -hmm. a trap of a datum, right? It's a it's a it's a piece of slavery that that you know, because it's obviously in that context, it's taken too far. Yeah. Yet it can take a long time to pull that kind of thing apart, you know. And we and and, and I've I've referred this to the and other people have over the years as the onion layers. You gotta you gotta yeah. dig and dig and dig. What's been you know? How do you see things like that and and taking those kind of things apart? I think that I think it does take time and questioning. Yeah. Are, are there any other tips or ideas you have on ferreting those kind of things out? And, well, and and bringing them into the light. 
this is where I look in terms of education as as a way of you know as part of the healing process mm. because in my experience, pretty nearly all the people that join an authoritarian group have joined because they're good people at heart. Mm-hmm. When they join, they have joined because they're good people at heart. They want to make a difference. They want to be able to look back at the end of their life and say, the world's a better place because I did something to make it not a worse place, to, to try and hold the line and, and advance forward and make it better. I did what I could, even if it was only one little thing. I did what I could to make it better. And they saw this group and the group saying, well, actually, we can help you to do more than just a little bit. We can help you to do a lot. And so that idealism is perverted, it's corrupted, and turned into a weapon against them. You can mm-hmm. call it uh, weaponized idealism, if you want. And so what or, happens is... Or weaponized know, empaths. That too. Well, yeah, those. I think those go side by side. Yeah, I, I think so too. Um, yeah. But, you know, that you take that normal intensity, which is on a scale, it's on a... Uh, on a spectrum, I almost said mm. gradient, but I don't want a gradient. <laughs> <laughs> it's on a spe- sorry, it's on a spectrum of more or less intense. Uh-huh. Um, I'm intense about certain things. I'm less intense about other things. Um, we all are. That's I'm, I'm, you know, I don't don't care about some things. That's normal for for most people. But a group like like we're talking about turns intensity up to eleven, and it becomes obsessive. Yep. It becomes it becomes in a way imitative of OCD type of behavior. Yes. Where you, you you just lock in and you've got to do this thing and then you've got to do it again and you've got to do it better and you've got to do it more and you become so wrapped up in it that instead of intensity being a tool, it becomes your master. Yes. And likewise, idealism is ramped up to 11 again. And, um, you know, thank you. Um, spinal tap. Yeah, spinal tap. Uh, I use that all the time. So totally. I, I think we all do. I think they yeah. have become a major meme now. Yes. Um, but it, it becomes ramped up to perfectionism. I don't see a problem with idealism. I don't see a problem with saying, I want to get better than I was yesterday. I don't see a problem with saying, I want to see if I can be the best person I can be. In a, in a in a a whole reasonable human sort of way, yeah. I see a lot of problems with saying I've got to be perfect or I'm a failure. And what I see coming together is this this exaggeration of two reasonable human qualities that gets stuff done. Let's face it, Martin Luther King wouldn't have been Martin Luther King without idealism and some amount of intensity. Of course, he was not a perfectionist, and he sure as heck wasn't wasn't obsessive. Because there was balance there in an abusive group, you crank all that up so hard that the person is always going to be a failure. Exactly. And then you beat them with their failures. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the difference there. So, so part of the, the education process is to make people realize that uh, another aspect of, of control, authoritarian control, is binary thinking, black and white thinking. Yep. It's either all good or it's terrible. They're either our friends and our, our, our fellow travelers, or they are the enemy. There's no middle ground. Right. There's, you know, um, in one of your recent videos, you talk about the, the rule about counter intention and then other intention. Mm-hmm. So you're not only getting rid of the enemy, but you're making an enemy out of people who just want to do something else. That's right. You know, they're That's neutral. Right. 
That's right. But, you know, first we get rid of the enemies, and then we get rid of the neutrals. So and that, that only leaves us the good that guys. Leaves only us. There is no middle ground. Right. And and that that binary thinking that says if it's not completely hundred percent our group, it is the enemy and has to be destroyed, is part of what makes an extremist group extremist. And how literally they take that then allows you to measure how dangerous they really are going to be. Are they going to bomb us or are they just going to flood us with um, with lies and gossip and and slander until we disappear? Are they just going to fair game us? Yeah, exactly. Um, so by, by giving people a kind of a, an, an educational view of how their goodness, how their, their good points have been corrupted against them, used against them, it enables them to, to do a reevaluation. If you say to somebody, for example, um, very often I find that when people are trying to be perfect, it's because originally they just wanted to do good in the world. Mm-hmm. And somebody told them that doing good isn't good enough. And I just leave that idea with you. Just leave that idea floating around in the air. And maybe we'll come back to it again in a few weeks' time until gradually it becomes a subject that we can talk about in some depth and we can talk about idealism. We can talk about, for example, the person who wanted to save the whales many years ago and got sucked into the group that told them, well, we're going to change everybody's attitude about environmentalism so totally that we won't have to even worry about the whales anymore because the whole environment will be safe. Only to find out that they weren't going to be allowed to do any of that. The whole environmental thing was just a scam to pull them into the group. And now your job is something else altogether. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, cor- that corruption that says, um, yeah, you, yeah, you, you want to play in the sandbox. We want to take you out of the sandbox and give you something that we think is important. Um, and that's the perfect thing to do. And this other thing, yeah. it's child. Yeah, exactly. So you, you see where that goes. Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, how interesting um, and unfortunate that this is done by people to other people. But that's the whole thing about predators and prey is there are, there's a select number of people out there. And, you know, God knows if I know what percentage of people it is in, in broad terms. But there's clearly a percentage of people out there mm-hmm. who really do see their life goal, their mission, their their thing is preying on other human beings. Yeah. It just is. It's a, it's a reality. And and they use this kind of manipulation, this kind of uh, identity manipulation and thought manipulation and and belief manipulation to, you know, to set people against one another or to, you know, set people on uh, on these dwindling awful sort of uh, life paths. You know, in service of the predator or in slavery to the predator even. And it's really unfortunate that that exists. I really wish it wasn't that way. I wish there were not human beings who did that to other human beings. But that ain't the world we live in. <laughs> you know, I can wish that all day long. It doesn't make it, doesn't make it reality. Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And, and power is attractive. The fact is that people... There are that small group of people you're talking about. They look and they see a certain structure that says, ah, that structure gives certain people a lot of power over other people. I want to be there. That's right. 
And so, you know, we see, we start seeing, and we make the mistake sometimes of saying, well, the structure is the problem. So we have to get rid of schools where there are teachers, or we have right. to, you know, look at any social structure and say, well, we have to change the structure. I, I can see why you'd want to change the structure so it's not tending to be abusive. But what we really have to do is, is to recognize that there are some people who will always look for a power structure and say, I want to be at the top of it. That's right. You know? That's right. I, I have police in my own family growing up. So I don't carry a grudge against police, but I do know that there are some people who are attracted to the police because it means they get to carry a club. And in the States, they get to carry a gun and they get to be powerful over other people. Yep. Uh, you know, and that wouldn't happen if we vetted the people who apply to become police better. But we either cannot or we do not or we will not. And that means that there will be a percentage of people who will say, I want to be a cop because I get to do things I want to do. Right. That's right. And there's no way there's no way around that. There's no way of avoiding that, stopping that, tamping that down. It's going to happen. And we have to vet the people who apply for power jobs. Exactly. We've got to psychologically recognize that certain people have an inclination to be in charge of other people in a way that's harmful to those other people. That's right. That's right. Um, And until we figure out a way to do that, we're going to keep having these. We're going to have pastors. We're going to have uh, rabbis. And we're going to have imams. And we're going to have gurus. And we're going to have policemen. And we're going to have dentists and doctors. And, you know, anybody who's got power over somebody else, that's an opportunity to abuse. And we've got to figure out a better way than we're doing right now. Because gifts aren't the only thing. We, we, I think we tend to hire these people because they're gifted at doing the job without asking, are they good with the people they're doing the job for? Are yeah. they good people? Yeah, and exactly. that's, that's a tougher question to answer. I, I don't have an answer for that. But I know we have to keep asking it until we do. That's right. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. You know, power, power structures, hierarchies, et cetera. This is complicated stuff. I, I, um, but I wanted to, I wanted to sort of wrap up now. I want to, we've been going for a while. I think we've covered some very important points here. And in wrapping this up, I want to kind of re-highlight some of those. Okay. Questioning, not talking or telling, um, you know, talking's fine, but not, you know, you dictating to a person what's up with them is nowhere near as effective as them telling you all about it. Exactly. Right. And questions are very important for that. Um, Giving people space, giving people time, realizing this is not a one and done, realizing that people are complicated and situations, of course, of control are are long, tend to be long term repeating patterns of conduct, which require a long time to get over, move past that trauma. Right. This is an important point we covered. And, um, you know, and kind of keep it simple and keep it, you know, on where the on the path that the person's on and can deal with rather, you know, you letting them recover. You're not driving their recovery, oh, no. you no, know, no. and, and it, well, this is a, this is one of these things where you kind of forget it sometimes because in your good intentions and in your in your desire to do good, you want to see results and you want to see results now, you know, and sometimes that's just not where the person's at yeah. and it's okay. You're still helping. You know, you're yeah. still helping move it along, even if it doesn't look like it. 
And that business of, you know, introducing ideas or questions and letting the person mull them over, come back a week or two or three, you know, that's sometimes what it takes for somebody who's dealing with trauma to process it through before the answer appears. You know, it's, it really is like that. So, so I think these are really important points we've, we've uh, kind of uh, highlighted here that you've, you've uh, illuminated for us. So, in the in the in the spirit of what we've been talking about today, any other wrap up points that you want to mention that we maybe need to highlight here before we, hmm. we go? I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, <laughs> I just want to make sure you had a chance to me, say everything uh, you wanted to. You know, so of all the questions you've asked me, that's probably the hardest one. Um, <laughs> hmm. Oh. I I think I think the only thing that really I would, I would say as, as a summary of everything is that if somebody's going to recover from, from abuse, they need to believe that re- recovery is possible. They need to believe somebody wants to help them. And they need to have the experience of that person honoring them, respecting them, and valuing them enough to let them move at their own pace. And... Gosh, I, don't, I, I hardly dare say this. I have over 50, nearly 50 years encountered people who weren't merely in a hurry, but who sometimes saw the people they were trying to help as somehow connected to their own unresolved issues. Now, I know this can happen in any form of counseling, and it does happen in any form of counseling, but... I also know that there are some people who walk a tightrope where they've said that they were triggered sometimes by the conversations they had with their clients. I think I think it would be easy to say, well, you shouldn't be counseling. I think what's more important to say is you need more supervision and you need to get your own counseling and stick with it longer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes it's very easy to think, well... I'm, I'm the professional now. I, I shouldn't be needing to be counsel anymore. I shouldn't need my own um, counselor, my own therapist. And I, I don't, a, I couldn't think of a wronger thing to say. <laughs> I know, but I, you know, I have encountered people who have told me that they have been triggered by the work that they're doing right. on behalf of other people. And to me, I'm not going to say, well, stop working up, but I am going to say you're, I'm going to say there is a line between a wounded healer and a healing healer. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I don't know how you can, I I mean, what we went over even in my classwork, and this was something I was actually pretty aware of before we even did classwork on this, is is it's damn near impossible to do this kind of work without being involved emotionally and, and traumatically yourself, because this is incredibly difficult stuff to hear about. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I think where I, where I'm, where I'm focusing here and I, I'm sure, I'm sure that somebody somewhere is going to want to push back on this is that there are some people for whom being a wounded healer means that they haven't done enough work on their own wounds. Mm-hmm outside of mm-hmm. their client's time. Mm-hmm. And so it's as if they're it's as if they're working together. It's as if they're co-auditing. Um, 
<laughs> co-counseling. It's yeah. as if they are working on each other rather than the counselor being in a position where they leave their own troubles outside. Right. And they are there for their client. Because if you're in that situation where what your client is saying to you is triggering you, is re-stimulating your own trauma, you're not there for them anymore. That's Part right. of you is there for yourself. And I, I'm trying really hard not to say, sound harsh about this because it's too easy for it to happen to anyone. Any one of us can find ourselves in that situation. Oh, but absolutely. I think, I think the burden is on the person who offers themselves to counsel, to be there for someone else. I think the burden is on them to say, I need to make sure that I am working on my own stuff, not using my clients to work on it. And if I'm traumatized by my client, I need to go and see somebody. Yes. I need not just not just a supervisor that is going to say, well, why don't you try doing this with them? Or have you thought about that? But, but my own therapist who is saying, let's talk about why you are traumatized by your client's story. Yeah. And if And if I can't do that, then I need to pass that person on. But I see people who are who are feeling the importance. That's, that's, that's what the problem is. We, we all feel the importance that there are too few people helping too many people. Yeah. Too few people. And that means the burden is I got to get out there now. And I myself experienced that back in the seventies that, you know, how do I sort myself out and get out there in time? Right. I had to go and see somebody. I had to spend time with my own people fixing me because the last thing I needed to be doing is going into a room and then having somebody say something and I'm having my insides wrenched out by what they've said because I'm going to feel for them no matter what some some of the stories I hear I mean I don't need to tell you some of the stories that people tell me of the terrible abuse it's just emotionally too much if you are also carrying your own unresolved trauma Exactly. Just too much. It's it's hard enough doing it with that with your trauma healed and healing. And so it, it's that thing of saying to people, take the extra time, get your own counseling, get your own therapy, get yourself in a place where you are no longer triggered by your clients. Then yeah. see people and keep an eye on that. And when you get triggered, go back, get more help. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's, it's an that's important the line point. I would draw. A healing healer, a healing healer is a wonderful thing. Yeah. A wounded well, healer you, who's carrying an open wound is not so good. No, they're not. And and I and I get your harsh words on that, or at least you're not you're not being harsh, but I get how it could go in that direction. Because you're not making a small point. It's an important point, especially for therapists. If you're gonna hang out a shingle and be a professional at this, then you gotta be a professional at it. I will say that um, I'll, I'll go one step further, and not only to counselors, but anybody really in this position, I will say there can actually be an inversion that occurs at a certain point, too. And I speak from personal experience with this, and I guess you, you experienced this as well in the 70s, where we not only push ourselves very hard and need to keep helping because there's too many of them and too few of us. Mm. It actually can invert to a point where you reframe it as a point of pride that you're being a martyr. That is a really important point. Yes, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> I will I'm because I've done it. You. 
I will because I've done it. And it was a mistake. It was a huge mistake. You do not owe the world your martyrdom. <laughs> okay, that's not the that's not how to help people. And and we can reverse that because we can feel stuck. We can feel, well, I can't, I don't have the time or the resources or the money or whatever to go get counseling or therapy or help. So I can't, so I won't, so I'm just gonna make do, so. I'm just going to do the best I can. Certainly that thought process and evolution is what led me to, well, I guess I'm just martyring myself now. And aren't I a great person and very heroic for doing that? And no, I wasn't because you're not, as you at the point you made is, is valid and important. When you are in a situation where you're the triggered one and you're relying on this person, you're supposed to be helping to get you through it. And then you're not really being present for them. And that's and that's that's you know not really what you're there to do in the first place. It's not really your mission or your intention. And so so we can we can flip that script on ourselves and do ourselves some real harm. And I want to uh, please advise people, don't do that. Don't go there. You know? And it has another it has another effect that isn't always talked about, and that is that if if somebody goes to a counselor or goes to a therapist. And they're telling the god-awful things that have happened to them, mm -hmm. the truly awful things that have happened to them. And the therapist starts to fall apart mm -hmm. or starts to become emotional in an uncontrolled way, whatever that might be, because they identify too strongly and they become triggered. That leaves the client with the sense, gosh, what happened to me is so terrible that I can't even share it with anybody because I yes. will hurt them. Yes. And the trouble is that these are the people who are so sensitive to not hurting other people. Yes. Again, yes. we come back to this idea that, you know, I, I say it frequently, the people that I meet in my work are some of the best people on the planet. They are just such kind people. They want to make a difference. They want to make the world a better place. They care about people around them. They don't want to hurt people. They sit in a room with somebody who falls apart or begins to, to wobble on them. And they think, gosh, what's happened to me is so terrible. I can't tell anybody because I'm hurting them. And they, they don't know what to do now. Now they can't get help. Right. And that, that's, that's an, an additional burden they're carrying when what they need is somebody to be able to say, I may at times feel a great deal of pain for what you've experienced because I, I can't stand that people do this to other people, but I will never buckle under that strain because I'm here for you. Exactly. They need to have that sense that, you know, the firefighter is not going to fall down under their weight as he carries them out of the burning building. Right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. A great analogy and great point. Um, okay. Well, that was a little unexpected, but definitely a very important point on this whole thing. So glad that you, glad you brought that up. And um, and there's only about a million more points to make on this whole thing. So we're going to, that's why I'm kind of arbitrarily... Oh, well. <laughs> Cutting it, you know, off here. But we've had a good talk here today. And I very, very, very much appreciate your time, Christian. And well, I appreciate uh, yours. This has been a, this has been really instructive. Awesome. And I, I, I sometimes do things without actually putting words to them. And whenever people ask me questions, I suddenly realize, oh, yeah, there's a way of describing that. And it's, you know, I, I'm learning from myself. Um, by the way, I wanted to say I saw your um, your your video on Scientology ethics. Oh, the one I, yeah, the live stream the one I did. you just put down. Yeah. And I thought, my goodness, yes. Those things need to be said and they need to be out there. Yeah. Because people don't realize just how rigid a, a, a straitjacket 
Scientology ethics really are. Yeah. There is no wiggle room. There's no, no being nice. There's no, well, we can accommodate you. We can, we can let that slip a little. Mm. Mm -mm. Nope. It was, it was, it was really interesting to, to experience my, over the years, the way my thoughts and feelings about that whole thing have changed and how, um, how clear it is to me now right in the policies, which I quoted from in the video, so you you can see it, you know, it's all right there. Mm. And if you're reading it with rose-colored glasses on like Scientologists do, then what you do is you mentally nullify half of it or the awful stuff, and you think, well, no, he doesn't really mean that. No, that's actually exactly what he meant, and that's why he wrote it that way. And... And it's really quite something when you get those rose-colored glasses off and can see the authoritarianism and the totalism for what it really is Hmm. and how self-reinforcing the system becomes. Where, you know, as I was reading in the thing, it's like if you're not a producer, if you're not an earner, ethics isn't going to protect you. And if you are, ethics is going to protect you. And it doesn't matter if you're a complete son of a bitch, asshole, rapist, dickhead, it's still going to protect mean, you. you know? as, as you were talking about all of that, I, mean, I was reminded of some research that I did way back, gosh, it must be almost 30 years ago now. And I came across, um, I think it was a policy letter, letter mm. from the mid-1960s on the Kakan. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And I thought to myself, you know, yeah, that that wasn't that wasn't a bit of of hyperbole or metaphor. That's this is what he's doing here. And it, right. you know, the first time I read that, that's right. I thought it's wow. And then hearing you talk about it again, you didn't refer to that particular policy letter, but you, no. you were referring to this to, to the essence of the policy. If if your stats are up, we're not interested in you. That's your right. stats aren't up. We are very interested in you. You sneeze and we want to see it. You know, right. um, that, that, that really close scrutiny of anybody who's not upstat. I thought, yeah, this is all those years ago when I stumbled on that policy letter. And whether they talk about Kakan or not anymore, the policy itself is, is written in stone. No, it very much is. And the attitude and spirit of it permeates Scientology. But interestingly... We, t- we, I have heard that term and, and heard references to that policy outside the church way more than I ever heard it when I was in. Right. Yeah, okay. we just don't, we just never really talked about it. We didn't, I didn't, I never knew any, I mean, I think I heard once or twice in 27 years about somebody being Kakan. And it doesn't invalidate the point in any way. It's just I'm making it known that people yeah. make a lot out yeah. of this when really in the Scientology world, it's not really that big of a deal. On the other hand, the things I was highlighting are common ethics references that are used daily by Scientologists. Yeah. And, and it's an important point, you know, is that this business of, you know, a cock-con, to, to continue my analogy of the mafia and Scientology, mm-hmm. the cock-con is the made man. Yes. He's the exactly. guy who can never do wrong again. He's protected like in a permanent way unless, you know, until the point he's not earning anymore. 
Yeah. Or he screws up so royally that it's just a liability to the organization itself to continue supporting him. And yes. that's that's your cock-con in Scientology. And it is yeah. an award. It is real. It is a thing. But it's not, you know, it's not so common as, you know, the, the treatment everybody gets as you're either an earner or you're nothing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Good um, stuff. I, just, I just found it interesting because, and again, you know, you used the analogy on, on the video of the mafia. Yeah. And I just found myself thinking of, of you know, when I grew up, because I grew up in New Jersey. And, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, mafia culture is sort of, it's right there on the edge of normal life. Yes. And uh, we really couldn't escape it in some ways. It was there to be to be aware of and to make sure you never crossed it. You know, you, there's a certain place up up on, on that road there. And uh, we're not going to go there for, they, they, they make good Italian food. We're not going there to eat. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just in case, um, just in case somebody gets taken out back and beaten to death with, a, with an axe handle or whatever. Um, but it, it, it's, again, it's that, that thing where the same kind of mentality that we've been talking about all this time it crosses outside of what people think of as a religious cult, in quotes. That's right. Um, it, it, it's a, a, a universal kind of extremism that says what we're doing is the most important thing, and in order to accomplish it, anything goes. That's right. And that's the essence of it. Exactly. So, and it's just taking things too far. Too far. Yeah, anyway. Too much. Anyway. Well, again, Christian, thank you very much for your time on this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. This was fun. And look forward to seeing you again sometime. Who Absolutely. knows? Maybe we'll do a maybe we'll we'll do something else in Canada in another 10 years or <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, folks out there. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. I hope that this podcast was informative, educational, and entertaining, as as I hope all of my content is. Uh, you can support the channel using the links in the description section to this video on YouTube, uh, through PayPal, pay, Patreon, whatever. But do, do consider supporting the channel because this is entirely fan-funded and everything I do here, I do for you guys. So, um, so it's only uh, fair that I ask for some return back, but the content will always be free. All right, so that all being said, I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.